0: A guy who is a local powerhouse who's never been exposed as a local powerhouse and has having his hands into a multitude of things that maybe he should not be there, he can't take that heat. And I think this is what resulted in Don Bowles' murder. The gentleman that's charged with it, I think, is an important figure. Of course, he was involved, we feel, in the homicide, and he partook in it, and he set Don up. What I want now are the other 5, six, ten, or whatever number it is who paid the money to have it done and the guys that pressed the button. And we are on to that right now. I mean today, we are on to that. We have been approached with information from certain figures who want to trade off lighter sentences for putting somebody into the death house. And understandably so, this is a death penalty case. I do not like terrorism. This was done as a gesture to the news media to stop looking into this community. And I resent that. This is my community. I resent it as a citizen, I resent it as a lawyer, and I resent it as a prosecuting attorney.
1: As the years dragged on in the Bowles case with its outcome in question, it became obvious several loose strands remained in understanding what really went down. Max Dunlap was a free man, while Jimmy the Plumber remained in prison on separate assault charges stemming from information given to the police by, you guessed it, John Adamson. Adamson was back on death row after his cooperation agreement was terminated. Meanwhile, Bob Corbin, Arizona's Attorney General, stated that John Adamson, his star witness, was totally lacking in credibility and couldn't be used in future trials. He had good reason to say that. Adamson was lying about several details in the case, including the bomb
2: used to kill dom adamson lied about the number of sticks he lied about the number and kind of magnets he lied about the kind of tape everything john described about that bomb was wrong i don't think he built it i don't think he put it on the car i think he winged it when he was confessing to that thing thinking they wouldn't be able to really challenge it that should have been a clue from the beginning because john's plea deal his confession was contingent on him telling the truth about all significant things the murder weapon is a significant thing. And if you're lying about the murder weapon, that should have challenged the, the entire arrangement with him. Uh, and they knew that immediately. The police department's own bomb squad said that Adamson was not telling the truth about the bomb. John Adamson would confess
1: on at least one more occasion to setting up Max Dunlap in the bull's slaying. He confided to Mark Koch, a fellow prisoner and former head of the Aryan Brotherhood, that Brat Funk and Neil Roberts were at the top of the food chain in ordering Bowles' murder.
3: I was on death row with Jimmy Robeson, Max Dunlap and a bunch of other people. Everybody made it off death row though eventually, except for poor little Fuzzy. Okay, let me do a little quick synopsis here. In 77, Adamson entered into a plea where he agreed to testify against Max Dunlap and Jimmy Robeson in return for a second degree murder conviction. After the first trial, they were both convicted, Max and Jimmy. Subsequently, the Arizona Supreme Court overturned their convictions, set a new trial, which didn't happen for 13 fucking years, so much for, you know, speedy trials. So at the second trial, uh, Adamson indicated that he was gonna refuse to uh, testify. State of Arizona said well fuck you we're gonna send you 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 violated the terms of your plea we're sending you back to death row because you confessed to killing them which they did and that's where I met up with him in 1989 so I'm back in CB6 John Harvey Adamson's on death row with all my boys and they're giving them the blues they're hit, trying to hit him with dar- blow darts and throwing shit on them So, when I went to the law library, and I realized it was him, he asked me if I could talk to the guys on death row. So, when I go into the law library, Adamson knew who I was, and so he solicited my help to try to get get the dogs off his ass on death row. I told him, yeah, you tell me everything about the case. And he did, and more. So what I did, I made a gaudy chart. I made a couple gaudy charts, because I didn't want to have my loose notes available for the cops to dig through my legal shit and uh, then, you know, fuck with me about something. Now, my meeting with Adamson was memorialized through those gaudy charts. Uh, the investigative journalist, Don Devereaux, uh, wrote up in one of his bylines and stories about the meeting. Because I called Bob Arthur, who was a private investigator I had known previously, from back in the old days, and I gave him the Gotti charts. I sent a copy to the Arizona Attorney General. Might have been Bruce Babbitt at the time, not quite sure. Or Janet Napolitano, possibly. Oh, they were all corrupt as hell. And this is what a Gatti, my Gotti chart generally looked like. So, anyways, this is the leader of the Emprise Corporation, his attorney, Neil Roberts, John Harvey Adamson. He went and beat this Porter dude up with baseball bats. He was uh, laundering money for the racing und- industry through Vegas and San Diego. And uh, Ad- Bowles was investigating the whole operation. And that's why he was taken out. Max lost his case. His attorney that I had sent the information to absolutely did not represent him. The attorney general ignored my information. His attorney ignored my information.
1: At around the same time, Roberts had become so spooked about his own safety that he put out word that he'd written a manuscript about the Bulls case called Other Lives, Other Lies with specific instructions in the event of his death.
2: Neil knew he was in trouble when this whole thing happened, and Adamson survived. and So Neil knew he was at risk and that he might get killed. And so Neil worked with a guy named Joe Patrick, who was a radio news guy in town, and they quickly uh, wrote a manuscript uh, that apparently he stashed with an attorney who had been a partner of his in an earlier life. Uh, unidentified. I know who the guy is now, and uh, he's now dead. Uh, and he left this, if anything happens to me other than a heart attack, you know, make this public. And it was apparently known to people that he had done this to protect himself. Otherwise, he might have been in trouble. So I got myself commissioned by Playboy magazine to interview Neil about the book. And uh, I called Neil up and said, you know, besides working for The Progress, I'm also working for Playboy magazine. Yeah. And, and Playboy understands that you've written a book about the Bulls case and we'd love to talk to you. And, and he agreed to meet with me. And then he called me back about a half an hour later and said he'd run it by his lawyer and his lawyer said, you know, don't do it. So he wasn't going to meet with me after all. But that was as close as I came to getting Neil to ever talk to me.
1: Other information would slowly trickle out as well including several phone calls to Neil Roberts' office the day of the bombing from none other than Senator Barry Goldwater.
4: He's the one, by the way, that Barry Goldwater called from Washington, D.C. the night of the murder, the night of the bombing, bombing, and said, what the hell is going on? How high up does this go? And what is it going to cost to make people shut up?
2: Goldwater, because of Don's interest in some of the stuff he was doing, had undoubtedly asked Neil Roberts to kind of keep an eye on that. And I think when Don was killed, uh, the reason that Goldwater or members of his staff phoned Neil Roberts several times that afternoon to find out what the hell was going on uh, had to do with a concern that maybe uh, Neil Roberts had overstepped the mandate. He'd been given by, by Goldwater to keep an eye on bulls. And maybe he had done something that Goldwater had not asked him to do. Because uh, I don't think Goldwater was that nutty at that time, like that. But I think he certainly was having Neal keep an eye on it. And so he was concerned he was going to get dragged into it.
3: For a
1: reporter who had allegedly given up any investigative work, there sure seemed to be a lot of powerful local players who were extremely concerned with keeping an eye on Don Bowles. Why? And what was the big story he and Tom Sanford had been working on in the days before his murder? It took Don Devereaux close to a decade to confirm Bowles' big story, but eventually he would uncover the final investigation of Don Bowles' career, the investigation that got him killed.
2: They were conducting their own ongoing probe of uh, the, the, the link and that had led Don by 1976 into an understanding that that mob skim money coming out of the tracks was being used as a front money for a large scale gold diversion from Motorola Corporation in Phoenix. And that was the big trail and he was following a story he was about to write in 76 when he was, when he was killed. When the gold thing it was done, it was the skim money from the tracks, Bonanno and Chicago, that paid for the front money for the, the gold water, the, the, the Motorola thing took some front money to get that organized and that was mixed Chicago bonato money. Chicago then ran the skim operation, the theft operation at Motorola. Paul Shirro ran it. control, and they and the Chicago mob also controlled the reclamation companies that took this gold and turned it into commercial ingots mm-hmm. in Santa Ana, Gemini Industries. Uh, that was Dominic Balzano. But then Bonano in Tucson controlled the sales operation into the international gold black market. The, the Chicago mob stole and processed the gold. Bonano marketed it. And they used mutual money from the dog tracks to finance everything. Don Bowles had figured out the beginnings of this. I don't know how far he was into it, but he was aware of the Motorola gold theft. And he was aware that it was being financed by skim money from the dog tracks. And how far he attracted after that, I don't know.
4: So why was he going to San Diego? And what was in San Diego information that was gonna help him, right? There are several theories about this. One of them is that he was going, that he had discovered a money laundering thing between Las Vegas and the dog tracks. Okay. Another is that he had discovered a, a, a some kind of a laundering thing between some some kind of thing at Motorola, it's Precious Metals, right? and a robbery there and the, the whole company. Another was that he was going to San Diego because he was going to get information on um, uh, Brad Funk, who was the hothead of the Funk family, that was the family, who had been divorced from his wife, who supposedly... Um, Don was, was courting in a weird way. Um, and that the guy that was going to be, um, he was going to get the wife to, to get all these documents to the divorce proceedings that were going to help Don in his investigation, including an allegation that Brad Funk had molested his children. Mm-hmm. So those, so you've got this range of th- theories, right? All of these are coming up stories. All of these are, and all of them involve the funks and Emprise. So, I mean, you, you, you sort of have a roadmap
1: here. Criminal minded media fans. Do we have a story for you? It's a New York story. One of those defining narratives that could only take place inside the rotten apple criminal minded media's podcast, honest services tells a story that runs the gamut from NYPD officials, union officials, hedge fund titans, orthodox Jewish community members, gangsters, lawyers, and even South Brooklyn family members that got ensnared in one of the largest NYPD corruption scandals of the last decade. This story also goes inside the machine they call the sovereign district or the Southern District of New York and the fame hungry United States attorneys that root out public corruption make headlines, and fight crime in what many feel is the gladiator arena for expert legal prosecution in our country. Honest Services follows the story of Jimmy Grant, a humble kid from Coney Island, Brooklyn, who rose the ranks of the NYPD and was on the fast track to one police plaza in a high-ranking position inside the NYPD. Grant found himself at the center of one of the weirdest, controversial, and corrupt investigations that the city of New York has ever seen. It beckons the question, how did Jimmy Grant, Coney Island Kid, and Jonah Rechnick, an Orthodox Jewish power player, end up on the same federal indictment? Honest Services from Criminal Minded Media. So, you had a cacophony of mobsters, the funks, empires, and God knows how many local politicos and power players on the take involved in this massive dog track and gold theft operation. That's an awful lot of suspects not named Dunlap and Robinson. But who was really involved with the plot to kill Don Bowles? Through his mob sources, Devereaux discovered that the June 1976 assassination was the second time that a contract had been placed on the reporter. In 1975, none other than Brad Funk approached the mafia requesting the murder of Don Bowles.
2: Uh, He initially, back in 1975, uh, approached the mob for sanctions to do that. And the Mafia on the East Coast families, the Buffalo end of the line, actually, and with Bonanno's involvement, actually discussed the, uh, that possibility uh, and uh, and agreed with it. Um, that they would sanction a hit on Don, um, subby to a couple of conditions. And their reason was that the mob has a hard line. Uh, you can go after any of us any way you want to, but you can't go after us through members of our family. And Don, by using Bradley's ex-wife uh, and sleeping with her to boot, uh, was across that line as far as Bradley was concerned, and the mob said, you know, that is across our line too. But the conditions that they laid down were very firm. Uh, one was that they picked the guy to do it, a real pro, and the second condition was that it wait until after the divestiture hearings that were going on. Empire mm-hmm. had been convicted in federal court a few years earlier of conspiring to hide mafia interests in a Vegas casino. So Empire, as a convicted corporation, was facing expulsion uh, from Arizona dog racing because, technically, as a convicted felon, which it was, it couldn't hold a gambling, a parimutuel gambling license or a liquor license or any of that stuff. And those hearings were going on at the state legislature at the time Don was killed. And uh, the mob was hopeful it could resolve that in a favorable way. But it didn't want something like Don being killed in the middle of that to, to muddy those waters and create hysteria that might cause them some trouble. Mm-hmm. So one of the conditions was this whole thing be postponed because it was a personal vendetta at that time. It'd be postponed until after the whole divestiture thing was resolved. Uh, The mob picked out a guy to send out here. His name was Anthony Rossi, Antonio Rossi, a.k.a. Tony Ross. He was from Buffalo. He was a mob guy, made mob guy out of Buffalo, working for Tony Provenzano out of New Jersey at that time. And he was one of the FBI suspects in the Jimmy Offa disappearance, which had happened in 75. I don't know whether Tony had anything to do with that, but he was being looked at by the Bureau. And he was riding a lot of heat in New Jersey as a consequence. So he was looking for a new place to play. So he was happy to come to Scottsdale and take up residence in preparation for killing Don Bowles at some point. Uh, by December of '75, uh, Brad Funk realized this was going to cost him 50 grand. Uh, Tony Rossi didn't come cheap, and and the mob didn't care about that, and and they expected Bradley to pay the money. Uh, Bradley was notoriously cheap about stuff like that, uh, even the cost of killing somebody, and so he wasn't having no part of 50 grand. And that whole thing just completely fell apart by December of 75 over money. And when it fell apart, the conditions laid down by the mob vanished. Now it's a whole new ballgame. And if, if Bradley can, can, can recruit somebody else to do it, since it's no longer an officially sanctioned mob hit, even if mob guys take part, moonlighting. Uh, this was no longer a mob-sanctioned crime. And the mob, in effect, those, those conditions laid laid, laid down uh, were not respected by Bradley Funk or Neil Roberts or John Adamson or anybody else. So they went ahead and, and did it without a professional and they did it right in the middle of, I mean, Don was covering those hearings at the state capitol the day he was killed. That was still ongoing. And uh, the mob never would have allowed as a sanctioned hit you know, North Central Avenue drunks like John Adamson and Neil Roberts to be Involved in a high-profile homicide. If the mob had done that homicide the way they had sanctioned it back in '75, with people like Tony Rossi, uh, Don would have vanished like Jimmy Hoffa. One day he never would have come home, and we would never know to this day, you know, whatever happened to Don Bowles. Who did he run off with? You know, where did he go? Um, they would have done a whole different kind of number. It would not have been messy, and it would not have been conspicuous, and it would not have been anything anybody could even probably prosecute. And that was, you know, that was the plan then. But that's not remotely what happened. And uh, Bonanno himself was in the Phoenix area. I understand the day of the bombing, uh, which was a pretty good indication. He did not know it was coming that mm-hmm. day uh, or he would not have been even in Timbuktu or anywhere, you know, a long ways from Phoenix when it, when it happened. It was, I'm sure, a bit of a shock to him. And he may have had some intelligence. That there was something going on, but nothing specific. And uh, he obviously worked very hard in the aftermath uh, with people like Roberts to put together, you know, what they put together to keep the mob and the dog tracks out of that ensuing investigation.
1: For Bradley Funk, this killing was a twofer. Not only would he protect the illegal operations he and his family and business associates were mixed up in, but he would brutally end the life of the man who become a little too close with his ex-wife. As Devereaux explains, take a close look at how Don Bowles was murdered.
2: The Bulls killing was a peculiar killing. This was a bomb under a guy's crotch at high noon. It was an emasculation killing, a castration killing. There's a lot of affect in that, including sexual affect. You know, my instinct should have been at the time, look around for an angry husband or an angry ex-husband. And because that's what this signifies to me, uh, this, was, this was going after Bull's masculinity in the process of killing him. Mm-hmm. There's lots of easier ways to kill somebody than putting a bomb under their crotch and hoping it does the job. Um, and this was not, you know, and Robert Slater said, the man that wants this done wants it done loud and clear. This is the way it has. That was not Kemper Marley. You know, Kemper just would want Bull to go on, but it would not be this crazy goddamn thing with a, with a car bomb under his crotch. After spending the better
1: parts of nine months investigating this murder, we're comfortable fingering Brad Funk as the man at the top who wanted Don Bowles killed. But who else was involved and how did it go down? As we stated early in our podcast, no one knows more about what transpired than Don Devereaux. He tells us what his investigation finally found.
2: Eileen Roberts, his temporary secretary at the time, describes meetings going on in Neal's office in the days leading up to the bombing involving Brad Funk and John Adamson. And so there evidently were discussions going on with all these guys and going through this thing. If, if Brad Funk had wanted Bowles killed, which I believe is what happened here, Neil obviously was the guy that made that happen for him. Neil was the guy with the relationship with Adamson and through Adamson to a killer named Carl Varevi. And so that was the the link that somebody like Funk would have needed to get it done. And bear in mind that Funk was also a pretty serious alcoholic at that point. Probably not in any great shape himself to personally marshal through a homicide plot. So as screwed up as Neil might have been, he probably was in better shape most of the day than, than Bradley was to get this sort of thing done. And... All of these guys did this in ways that I would almost be inclined to think that we're all dealing with kind of sociopathic personalities, and guys who don't seem to have the same moral considerations as the rest of us do. Uh, it's just, you know, whatever works kind of a thing. And so this was what they were talking about doing. But it clearly would have been Neil playing a very crucial role. Without Neil's role, I'm not sure it ever would have happened. Uh, I don't think Bradley on his own steam could probably have got it done when the original effort he had made had fallen apart over money. So, Neil Clooney was a a key player in this whole scenario and also quickly aware when it went bad that he had a lot of equity in it and had to try to keep himself out of harm's way and began appealing for help from other donors to put together a financial war chest to protect everybody, himself included. For a long time, the Funk family uh, uh, in the person of David K. Funk, I uh, had an apartment in the Executive Towers, 21H. And it was uh, an apartment that was used by all the Funks. Because they all had nice homes in town. Mm-hmm. But you want to have an affair or get over a hangover or something with a place you could go a hole up and not be bothered by anybody. So they maintained this apartment in the Executive Towers as kind of a family refuge. And Bradley used it a lot for a place to spend time and hang out. and probably over hangovers, and and it looked right down. It was at the corner of 2nd Avenue and Clarendon. It looked right down on the parking lot of the Clarendon Hotel, the perfect spot from which to use a a detonator to (laughs) blow up a car down in that parking lot. In the last couple of years before the bombing occurred, that building was being converted from apartments to condos, and the funks had given up their apartment, but the upper floors were still mostly not sold yet the building was kind of selling from the ground up. And the top floors tended to be vacant apartments waiting to be sold as condos. And the locks had not been changed. My personal hunch is that that Bradley Funk sitting on the balcony of 21H and his fantasies about blowing up Don Bulls, which go back certainly to 73, uh, you know, thought about that. <laughs> Being on that balcony, looking down at that parking lot and, and getting rid of that son of a bitch. And I think when that plot got activated in 76, they reached back to that earlier fantasy that Bradley had when he used to hang out in that apartment a lot. And I think that's where Carl Veribi was when he he pushed the button that blew up the car down below. And there was a trash chute on every floor where you easily could have ditched the remote control device that would go down to a crusher in the basement and walk away, you know, home free which I'm pretty sure is what Carl did. I think he pushed the button, dropped the device in the trash compactor, left the building the way he had entered it, went back to Neil Roberts' office, which was not that far away, and then waited to find out that Adams' name would come up, got the hell out of Dodge.
1: Remember the three cars reported stolen from Neil Roberts' office the day of the bombing? According to Don Devereaux's sources, this is how that transpired.
2: John was in and out of the office. Carl was obviously in and out of the office. <clears throat> when, when Adamson's name came up, I'm told by somebody who heard it from Carl, I mean, apart from John Adamson, that Carl basically said, I don't care what you guys are going to do, I'm getting the hell out of here. And he took one of the keys off the pegboard, which happened to be for a pickup truck, and went to the airport with it, where the truck was later found in a parking lot at the airport. And I understand he flew back to California and got out of, got out of town. But uh, John was around uh, in the aftermath of some of this stuff at that point. He's, or at least knew about this from Neil. Uh, one way or the other, he knew that Carl had left, uh, apparently for that reason. Uh, I think these people didn't expect John's name to come up. He put a whole different twist on the, on the situation for everybody. And Carl left town, and Neil had to get busy, you know, hiding John out.
1: So if you're keeping score at home, we have Brad Funk, Neil Roberts, John Adamson, and Carl Vareeve all neck deep in the plot. What about Jimmy Robeson, who was still sitting in an Arizona prison despite his conviction being overturned? There was a Jimmy involved in the killing of Don Bowles, but it wasn't Jimmy the Plumber.
2: The police department, the homicide unit, focused with with uh, with you know great persistence initially on, on Jimmy Robeson and they had to have a Jimmy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, there was a Jimmy out there. His name was Jimmy Burdick, who was little Jimmy, little Jimmy Burdick, James Edward Burdick. He was a partner of Carl Verivi in a, a junkyard on Buckeye and in a apartment maintenance business. Uh, Jimmy Burdick was an air force veteran with training in munitions and electronics. He worked for an electronics company in, in Tempe. Um, he was the kind of guy who could do what neither John Adamson nor Carl Verrivi could do in terms of putting together a remote-control bomb. Uh, Carl Verrivi was the kind of guy who could light a stick of dynamite and throw it at you, but he was not the kind of guy who knew how to uh, organize a remote-control device and a bomb to do it th- the work that needed to be done. And evidently, Burdick was the guy that did that as far as all the indications are. That was his contribution. He 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 essentially built the bomb and and showed them you know how to do it Uh, and told his girlfriend at the time that uh, that he'd been warned to get out of town that day and was waiting in an airport in St. Louis when it actually happened and talks about one of the guys being involved named Big Carl, uh, who is obviously he he was little Jimmy and Carl was Big Carl because Burdick was a fairly slender guy at that time and compared to Carl Revy, he was a diminutive fellow. Big Carl, Little Jimmy. And that's how they were known among their, their buddies. So when when Adamson ultimately decided to make his deal, uh, he was happy not to give them Burdick, because Burdick was a direct link to Revy and the mob, which he knew was lethal if he did that. So he was perfectly happy to give them Robeson. Since they had already misconstrued Little Jimmy to be Robeson, Adamson quickly said, yeah, that's the guy. That's, mm. and it's Robeson. So that's the direction they went.
1: In the late 80s, the state of Arizona decided it would take another crack at the Bulls case, impaneling a grand jury and bringing in several people to testify. High hopes of a proper investigation would eventually be dashed.
2: Yeah, I testified before that same grand jury. Yeah, I was subpoenaed. And that grand jury started out among like about 89, as I recall looking like it might actually go in a righteous direction. And I was called to testify, and and I testified, Kathy Colby testified. We gave them lots of good information. But the AG's office got a grip on that grand jury after about a year and carefully steered it back uh, to the original theory of the case.
1: Despite all the new information developed over the years, the state decided to double down on the Marley theory, recharging Jimmy Robeson and Max Dunlap the murder of Don Bowles. John Adamson, the man that Attorney General Bob Corbin stated had no credibility and couldn't be used in future trials, would once again be the state's star witness against both men. Utterly ridiculous.
2: And one of the cops in this investigation, and one of the homicide cops, (laughs) uh, when a couple of attorneys I knew, uh, attorneys for mob guys, Uh, confronted this cop and said, we know that Adamson is lying about a lot of this stuff because we know from our clients, you know, what happened here. Uh, This cop told them, we know that, but as long as he is our witness, we are going to do our best to preserve him. And I've heard that on the record from a couple of attorneys. And, and, I don't think it was a secret in the police department that for all kinds of reasons, they knew that at least in some respects, John was not telling the truth. And yet they let the whole thing float forward as a, as a, as a basis for prosecution. In 1993, 13
1: years after their convictions were overturned, Dunlap and Robeson would be retried separately for the murder of Don Bowles. Jimmy Robeson would be acquitted after members of the jury panel stated, That John Adamson lacked credibility as the star witness. Big shock. He had still spent close to two decades in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Max Dunlap would not be so lucky. After two hung juries, the state of Arizona finally got its conviction. Max Dunlap would die in prison at the age of 80. But what happened to the real players involved with this murder? Little Jimmy Burdick, says Don Devereaux, appeared to be the only one involved in this sordid affair who seemed to carry any guilt, getting sober and becoming deeply religious.
2: You know, he was the one guy in this whole mess who, you know, sort of halfway redeemed himself toward the end of his life. But the other guys did not. Uh, For certainly was unrepentant uh robbers was unrepentant bragging but unrepentant uh adamson was a coked up drunk weighing about 300 pounds when he when he died carl vereev
1: would leave the state of arizona shortly after the bulls murder settling in palm springs must be nice he would be called to testify before the grand jury in 1990 but that was the last time he was questioned regarding don bulls he died in palm springs in the early 2000s, John Harvey Adamson, released from prison in 1996 and placed in witness protection, died somewhere on the East Coast in 2002 after years of battling alcohol and substance abuse issues. Neil Roberts, whose law career never recovered from the implications of his involvement in the Bulls murder, basically drank himself to death in 1999. Suffering from alcoholism related illnesses. Roberts died destitute in his small Sunny Slope apartment. In January of 1990, Pradley Funk suffered a massive heart attack while parking his Jaguar in the upscale Biltmore area. Enterprise, the Funks mobbed up former partners in the Arizona dog track monopoly, rebranded themselves Delaware North, in part to distance themselves from controversies such as the Bulls' murder. In 2021, despite business slowdowns related to COVID, Delaware North generated almost $3 billion in revenue. Meanwhile, all investigative files relating to the Don Bowles case remain locked away from public view until 2026, 50 years after his murder.
0: And I ask you, who? Are they still trying to protect?